Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Rick Mace, who is a sports features writer for the Washington Post. He's done extensive reporting on NFL team doctors' practices of prescribing pain pills to keep players on the field. So, Rick, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. So, you reviewed the sealed court documents in a federal lawsuit against NFL teams by former players that painted a really disturbing picture of the use of powerful painkillers in the sport. The account included violations of federal prescribing laws and giving medication to players without even disclosing what they were. So tell us about that story. That's just, it's un, unfathomable. Sure, sure. And I guess we maybe take a couple steps backward. Um, the, the, the Washington Post has had an interest in football and some of the health and safety issues um, for many years, um, really predating some of the concussion litigation that, that made so many headlines. Um, and in 2013, we did a long, extensive series of stories that really looked at all these different facets of this complex medical world, um, really showing that you know the, the medicine and the care that football players receive is very different than what you and I might receive if we go to the ER to our, to our family doctor. How so? Well, um, you know, the, the, the main goal of these players is to, to Invent the players with the teams, but it's to return to the field. It's to 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 play. It's not necessarily to take your time and recover. It's to get out there and continue being productive. Um, there's obviously incentives for the teams. They want to win games. There's incentive for the players. They want to maintain um, their roster spots. They want to they want to keep getting the the, the comfortable paychecks. Um, and it's just different than if you or I had a, had a knee injury. The doctor might say, "Hey, this is going to take nine months. You, you know, take your time. Go through this step. Go to this rehab facility." These players are really in, it's, they're incentivized to, to return to play as soon as possible. So you've got really a built-in conflict of interest there, don't you? Sure. And, um, you know, that, that was the name of our series, in fact, was Do No Harm. Because if you go back to the Hippocratic Oath and what, what the, 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 the guiding ethics um, for, for physicians, um, you know, it's to, to do no harm to the patients. And um, there, there are certain cases here where there's, there's people and critics that would say that that's not the way NFL doctors and trainers work, that, that they're really beholden to the team owners and the competitive aspect of the sport. Um, and so one, one big corner of that is the, the use of um, drugs to, to treat pain, to anticipate pain. Um, and, you know, that, that was a big corner that we, that we focused on in that series of stories. So you fast forward a little bit 
um, that there was a, a lawsuit filed uh, against the NFL um, specific to, to painkillers and the administration of drugs. Um, and then when that lawsuit was eventually dismissed and it's currently being appealed, so it's, it's not gone altogether, mm-hmm. um, the, the same lawyers refiled another lawsuit and they, they filed it against the 32 teams individually. And without going into to, too deep into labor law here, the NFL and its players, they, they operate with a collective bargaining agreement. The players are represented by a union, and that agreement um, gives them certain mechanisms to, to resolve disputes. Um, and so a lot of times these, these cases never reach, never reach a jury, never reach a judge, because they go through, through uh, an arbitration process. Um, they, they're dealt with privately, confidentially, um, and that's why the first suit was dismissed, because the, the CBA existed and the, the case was preempted. The second one, the judge actually said, hey, let, let's go ahead and let this thing go, go through a little bit more. Um, and that's rare in cases with the NFL. And that's why we don't usually get some of these, um, you know, details about how they operate. So, um, and, and this one actually went forward a little bit. And the plaintiffs, the ex-players were allowed to go through the discovery process. So you had an opportunity to call it, look under the hood on this exactly. one. Exactly. It, it was a rare opportunity. Um, and so... Um, I wouldn't want to say we were excited, but we were very interested to see where this case was going to go. Sure. Um, and, you know, the, for, for a long time, the case didn't go, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of speed behind it. And one of those reasons is there's a protective order in the case. A protective order in a case like this. What for? A lot of times it'd be there if, if one of the parties feels like there's confidential information that's, that the public shouldn't know. So let's say Coca-Cola has a, a recipe of some sort and they think that's a proprietary information and and they think it should be closed off from the public. Um, so you might enter into a protective order in a case like that. This one, I couldn't tell you exactly why there's a protective order, um, but both sides agreed to it and the judge approved it, so it existed. But what happened, we, we, we noticed a glitch in one of their filings. It was an important filing because um, it, was, it was the complainant. It was laid out all the allegations the players had against the teams and all the redacted information I was able to access. Wow. So you can imagine so, as a reporter, I was pretty excited because that is when we were looking under the hood. Before we saw the hood, it was closed to us. And once we were able to actually access the information, that's when the hood opened. And voila, there was a lot of information there that we, that we were interested in and, and excited to see. So what's redacted? So the, the information that's redacted there is a lot of the stuff that was gathered during discovery, stuff that might come out you know, when, whenever this eventually hits trial, if it hits trial. So that means basically they're crossing it out. So you can't tell what that is. Yeah, it's all blacked the, out. Yeah. And okay. it's basically all the investigative work that attorneys have been doing in the case, um, mm-hmm. stuff that, that was supposed to be sealed off from the public. Um, suddenly we had access to it. Yeah. So what was under the hood? <laughs> so uh, a lot of things that were of interest. Um, there, were, there were a lot of... Um, documents and emails and communication that the, the league, their, their teams, their doctors had to turn over. Um, some of those were things like drug logs that, that give us a, I don't want to say we ever had the, we still don't have the full picture of drug use in the NFL. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be misleading there on any level. I feel like we got little snapshots. So there might be a document that, that detailed some of a team's drug use or uh, you know, one team's drug use. And let's make clear, there's 32 teams in the NFL. They all operate independently. Um, you know, the way the way this team in Chicago dispenses drugs is different than the way this team in San Diego might do it. Oh, so it's not uniform. It's it's not uniform. That the the doctors are for the most part independent contractors, um, and and they kind of decide how they they're going to treat their patients. Okay, and there might be different pressures in one city. Um, the San Francisco 49ers, for example, they're owned by doctors, so they might treat 
their team and the medical care their players receive differently than, you know, a team in New York that's owned by, you know, a businessman or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So a lot of emails and communication. Um, and then there were some of the, the, the transcripts that were, that were stemmed from depositions involving players, team doctors. Um, and that was some of the most enlightening stuff, I think, because that's where you had um, team doctors basically admitting, um, yeah, we, we were aware that, that some of these laws existed. And when we talk about laws, we're talking about how drugs are transported, Over how they're stored, lines. how they're administered, yes, mm-hmm. um, how the, you know records are kept. Um, you know, doctors basically said, yeah, we were, we were briefed on some of this. Uh, yes, we continue to operate in our own special way. Um, and, you know, is, is basically an admission of, of guilt in some level, um, that, you know, they, they felt like they were doing the best they could. They just kind of think that the, the NFL presents unique circumstances. Hmm. So basically they take their medicine cabinet on the road, but they're not supposed to. Exactly. Um, you know, if you think about an NFL game we watch on a Sunday, there's a home team, um, very very simple for, for you to understand medical care, how it might work there. Um, the, the visiting team, they're going to have 53 players suit up. 45 will take the field. There's also going to be a team of trainers on the sideline. There's going to be at least a team doctor, maybe also you know a specialized orthopedist, maybe a neurologist, whatever the team feels like they need to take on the road with them. Um, and over the course of the game, there's going to be injuries that happen and medicine that needs to be dispensed. So... Um, usually for, for years and years, teams would travel with, with medicine of controlled substances, whether they're, you know, opioids or Vicodin or Percocet or something like that, or, um, different kinds of anti-inflammatories, whether it's prescription strength or over the counter stuff, they're all on hand there to treat players for, for whatever punishment is doled out in the course of that game. Mm -hmm. So, well, um, obviously you want them to to abide by the laws, the rules, um, it would seem as though they need to have access to medication to do their job while they're on the road in terms of medicating players. Um, I think what's more, even more troublesome than that and troubling is the amount of opioids that they're actually prescribing. Mm-hmm. And you cite that in your article uh, for a couple of teams, notably, uh, I'm a Browns fan, um, I still say that out loud, yes. <laughs> uh, our rival, the Pittsburgh Steelers. So you mentioned in your report that they dispensed more than 9,600 doses of pain medication to its players in 2012. Now, put this in perspective for me, Rick. Is that big? Is that a lot? A little? What is, where, where yeah, is some, some of this can be subjective. So let's, as a, as a baseline point, let's point out that that's kind of middle of the pack, according to these court documents. So at 9,600 number... Um, really is is kind of the, the norm. And that's one of the reasons it's good to include that because you can realize some teams are going to be giving out a lot more. And sometimes some teams might be giving out a lot less. Um, the other thing I want to point out is 96,000 doses. Um, this is all prescription strength. So this is not, you know, 96,000 children's Tylenol or something. So do I have a typo here? Is it 96,000? Is it? Is uh, no, it's 9,600. So if I'm misstating that, I apologize. Okay. Um, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I'm, yeah. I'm relying on, on your notes here. <laughs> Um, I'll fact check later. Yeah. Um, and really, if, if you're going to do the math, um, it, it's so subjective. Now, I would say if you want to compare it to, um, let's say, journalists, we, we, we don't need that many over the course of a season to, to get through a football season. Um, yeah. So I, I think what it, really <laughs> I does, what it really does illustrate, I think, is that there is pain involved in the National Football League. Um, and as long as there's pain, there, there needs to be some kind of system for treating that pain. 
Um, and, and the one, the one that we're talking about here is, is drugs and, and pain killing drugs. Um, so I, I really think that, I mean, and you can watch on TV and you see these heavy hits and after four quarters, the TV goes off and most fans, maybe they'll check their fantasy team or they'll, they'll watch the highlights later, but you're done thinking about it. These players go in the locker room and they, they shed their equipment. They take off their pads, their helmet. Um, but, but the pain lingers and it doesn't just linger that day. It doesn't just linger Monday when they wake up. It lingers years after they leave the game. Um, there's been various studies on this. And in fact, at the post, we, we did a survey of retired players in 2013. Um, we asked 500 of them a series of questions related to pain. Um, and sure enough, you know, eight and 10, nine and 10 say they're still experiencing pain in retirement related to their playing days. Wow, 80 to 90% of them. Yeah, and what, what that kind of tells you is that, um, yeah, they, they need they need this medication or they feel they need this medication to take the field, but they also need it just to get up, get out of bed and live normal lives years after they leave the game. So, um, you know, as, as long as pain is inherent in the game, pain management is, is going to be a, a part of the equation. So we talk about 9,600 doses. I don't want to put, put any opinion on that. People can make of, make of it what they want. I just think it just really illustrates to you that it is a a, a big issue that, that they deal with, um, that the players deal with, that doctors deal with, the trainers deal with. Pain exists, and they're trying to figure out a way to, to minimize it or at least allow players to, to take, the, take the field pain-free. So there's a report that also says that doctors and team trainers shouldn't have communication with the team about the player's health. So I believe this report was... From Harvard? Yeah, it's Am a Harvard, I right in Harvard study. Yeah. Okay. So comment on that. So the, the obviously there's been a lot of initiatives to investigate uh, health and safety issues in the NFL and a lot of grant money involved. Um, Harvard Medical School and Harvard in, in cooperation with their, their law school, they've received a good chunk of grant money. Um, I think most of it's probably earmarked from the, the union, the NFL Players Association. And so one of the recent studies was um, headed by the law school. We're just looking at some of the ethical issues um, involved with um, the healthcare system in the NFL. And the recommendation was to, to, to separate the doctors from, from basically ownership. Right now, doctors are paid by the team owner. So the question is, well, does that mean they're beholden to the team owner or are they answering to the players? Um, and did this report stated all kinds of conflicts or potential conflicts of interest. Um, it's the players' private health information being shared with coaches, front office members, the owner. Um, but the main thing it's pointing out is like, hey, as long as this conflict exists or this potential conflict exists, something's wrong with the equation. So they're one of their, their big recommendation was that team doctors should not be employed by the owner. They should not be communicating with the owner. Um, even if they are employed, um, there should be some, some other kind of channels there that, that really build walls and, and separate the doctor and make it very clear the doctors has, has one person to answer to, and that's the patient. That's the football player. Do you see a world in which that evolves in the NFL? Very difficult to see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the NFL did, was not warm to the idea. Um, certainly, I mean, let, let's remember the NFL has been around for, uh, you know, since the more, 30s, more than, or the 20s. more than 50 years in its current, in its current setup. Right. Um, you know, they've been doing, they've been doing the things this way for a long time and it, it's hard to kind of, uh, you know, un- unroll that ball of yarn and and, and re- reinvent things. So A lot of inertia going on there. Certainly. And a lot of it goes back to drugs, too. I mean, you talk to old football players, and 
you know, I certainly remember when, when I was a younger sports writer and I talked to old players and, and they kind of laugh about how they needed to have a case of beer after a game to deal with the pain or, you know, they, they chew whatever pill was handed to them. Um, you know, it's, for some reason when I was, when I was younger and didn't, didn't think much about these issues, it was easier to kind of chuckle and be like, ah, those old players, that's how they used to do it. But, um, you know, this, the allegation of this lawsuit make it sound like that was really the, the standard operating procedure in the NFL for, for years and years. It wasn't something that was done in the sixties. You know, it was something that the, this, this lawsuit alleges was still happening as recently as a few years ago. And, um, yeah, it just shows you that the, the, there's a certain culture there. And when you're talking about a culture, you don't change those things overnight. Um, you know, the NFL is still dealing with concussion issues, even though, um, you know, we've been talking about that for five, six, seven years in a, in a very serious way. Um, they're still trying to change the culture there. Um, and that's on both ends. It's the way the club operates, the doctors operate. It's also the way the players operate. Um, you know, players are competitors. They, they want to return to the field. They want to, they want to be there for their teammates, their, their brothers in arms. Um, and, you know, the, the, the same applies a little bit to the, to the, to, to the drug conversation. They, they want to get out on the field. And some of them aren't thinking and asking questions about, Hey, how's this going to impact me long term? They're thinking about how am I going to how am I going to make the big play in the second half and make sure you know that my quarterback is protected or that I can get in the end zone. Um, that's why you need a system set up in place that um, doesn't force them to make those difficult decisions. Um, you mentioned concussions, and you know that brings me to the conclusion that maybe, just maybe, there's an inkling of hope to bring in independence because they did bring in an independent physician to observe concussions on the field and, and examine the players, right? Sure. Um, I mean, I don't want to predict what the NFL is going to do, but I will point out that I, I know a lot of people that work at the NFL and work with a lot of football teams. Um, by and large, I do not think they are bad people or nefarious people or evil people. Um, I think that They've been in their business for a long time and they have a way of doing things. Um, and a lot of them aren't always quick to, to acknowledge when there's maybe a different way or a safer way or a better way to do things. But um, I think we've certainly seen in the past few years that they're open to change. They, they, I, I do believe they want to have a safe, healthy game. I think they've made a, a host of rule changes to make the game safer, especially when it comes to head injuries. Um, so the, the way they belatedly responded and I don't want to give them too much credit because they had to be pushed in this direction they, they they did not raise their hand and eagerly tackle the concussion issue in fact it was quite the opposite but the fact that they did eventually and have done stuff even if it was a uh, you know someone pushing them in that direction it does give you hope that this issue and other issues will be tackled in a serious manner um, you just hope that they they don't wait too long to do that because you know we, I, I've, I've met football players that, that you know, suffered because, you know, the, the concussion litigation went, went on too long. If the NFL would have addressed some of those issues while these guys were still playing, um, you know, who knows how, how their fortune might have turned out differently. And obviously, I don't got to tell you about, um, you know, the impact of, of dangerous painkillers here. But, you know, one, one day often is, is one day too many. So you want them to address a lot of these issues as, as quickly as possible. And really, 1,800 former players have come together in this suit against the, the league. And, you know, it, it claims also that they suffer from long-term organ and joint damage, among other maladies. And it's all as a result of improper and deceptive drug distribution practices by the NFL. So 
when you look down the road, do you see this and the issues with concussion as being the beginning of the end for the NFL? Could you see an NFL not existing 20 years down the road? No, I have a hard time, um, you know, really entertaining doomsday scenarios with the NFL. It's just so popular. There's so much money involved. And even when there's a brief ratings blip for some reason, uh, the fans still come back. They, they still tune in, not just the Super Bowl, but to Sunday games and Monday night games. Um, and not to say that they're invincible and they're going to they're gonna be around forever because I think things go in cycles. And um, certainly, you know, there's other sports can come along and overtake that popularity. But I think in the near future, and I consider 20 years in the near future still, I think they're, they're, they're going to be able to adjust and adapt, or they're going to try to adjust and adapt and evolve um, in ways that their, their audience demands. So I think part of it's on the audience, and I mean um, media that covers the league and fans that, that are buying the tickets and turning on their television sets um, to, to tell the NFL what they're willing to tolerate. Um, concussions become a, became an issue that the NFL had to take seriously. Um, this could become an issue like that too. Um, 1,800 players, and that, that I suspect that's going to grow as long as this case continues. So, um, they're all C-class action status, but it's not just those guys. Um, you know, I, I think the, the not a, there have not been a lot of great studies done on uh, addiction issues these guys face, but probably the, the most relevant one, I think it was around 2010, 11, um, and it found a, an addiction rate of 7% uh, upon retirement which at the time was three times higher than the national average. Um, and since then, you know, the, the painkiller crisis in the country has, has obviously gotten worse. Um, I, I hate to speculate, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if the addiction number in the NFL mm-hmm. has also gotten worse. Um, it's just, there's more pills. Sure. And in some circles, it's become easier to get them, um, easier to talk about them. Um, and the pain, the pain these guys deal with in retirement hasn't dissipated. It's still there. Yeah. And they still have to deal with it. Um, so I, I certainly hope the addiction number stays stays as low as possible. Um, but until until we really see some, some healthy alternatives, uh, it's hard to really understand what exactly these guys are going to do. So the NFL is so big, so powerful. They have an opportunity here. Right now, as a country, we're in a crisis. This is this epidemic is we are losing so many people, more than car crashes, more than deaths related to guns, gun violence. Um, This is severe. They have an opportunity to step up and take a leadership position in this and really make a difference. What do you think it would take to get them to hop in the driver's seat on this and take a leading position to make a difference in the opioid epidemic, Rick? Well, let me share with you a quote that was given to us, um, and this is 2013, and this is from Jeff Pash. He's the NFL's executive vice president, so one of one of the top men at the league. And we, we were talking about um, this very subject. He said, the whole issue of pain meds is a big, important issue in our society, well outside the NFL. It's something that needs to be addressed on a broad basis, not just, not just in the NFL, and it's something our doctors are looking at. So I think there's a couple ways to take that kind of quote. Um, it's certainly an acknowledgement that an issue exists on some level. Um, now you could say that he's passing the buck. That's what I would you say. You could say he's passing the buck and saying that society has to deal with this and, right. and we'll follow suit. Um, or, you know, you could, you could say that, you know, he acknowledges it's a big, big issue in society. And it's as long as it's an issue in the NFL, it's something that they can look at and, and maybe it will help society somehow down the road. 
What year was that? That was 2013. Okay. How much have they done in the last four years? I'm not sure if they've done a a whole lot and certainly hasn't done anything visible that that might impact people outside of, outside of the football world. Um, but I I think you're right. I always think that when we're talking about this huge platform that the NFL or any professional sports league team or player has, um, they, they can, they can do a world of good by using that platform in positive ways. Um, and we, we, we see it happen. We saw, uh, Colin Kaepernick, the 49ers quarterback, and whether you think it was a, a good, a good thing he did by kneeling during the anthem or a bad thing, you see the power of that platform because it got people talking. It did. Um, we see when the NFL does, uh, pink cleats and pink, uh, you know, pads for, for breast cancer awareness. Um, I mean, you know, cynics might question some of their motives there and, and the way they go about this, but, it is a very visible thing that they're able to do and they, they're able to be a part of the conversation or encourage the conversation. Um, this is certainly an area they can, they can, they can take on. I, I'm sure it's a, it's one that's filled with, you know, potholes for them because there's a lawsuit going on and they'd have to have answer questions about their past. But I think if they, if they look to the future, um, you know, they, it's something they could tackle head on. I think former players, if, if, if they can, get over whatever shame they, they might feel. And certainly I think that's unjustifiably so and, and, and share their story. It would help shine a spotlight. And it's also on, you know, media and fans to take it seriously too. And uh, we've had this conversation in our newsroom. Um, it's a topic that's important to us. We're going to keep writing about it. I hope people read about it. And I hope other media outlets will, will also take it seriously. So um, best-selling author, Sam Kenyonis, uh, author of Dreamland, and Dreamland outlines how we got to the opioid crisis uh, and how we got to this point in that. It goes back 30 years and goes all the way through the process. At the end of the day, the point that he makes is what's really going to make the difference in the opioid epidemic and changing things is leadership, leadership in our communities, leadership in business, leadership in America. And so... I hope that we have an opportunity here somewhere down the line for um, the fine work that you're doing, kind of shining a spotlight on some of these practices where we can encourage some leaders to come out of the woodwork on this. Well, I appreciate that. And I think as long as, um, you know, there's, there's people fighting and I consider, you know, these lawyers and former players, I consider them to be, to be fighting. I mean, they, they want to correct the system. Um, you know, they're, they're not suing entirely out of goodwill here. Um, but they, they are hoping for change. So um, we'll, we'll continue monitoring that case and seeing where it goes and seeing what the NFL kind of does in, in reaction to it. So if you were to sum up the lessons that can be learned by the example that the NFL set has set in prescribing practices, Rick, what would that be? I don't know. I mean, it, like I said, football is a, a brutal physical sport. Um, you're not going to eliminate pain from the game. So I think that the lesson that we're still trying to, they're, they're still wrestling with is how are you going to treat that pain? And I think for 30, 40, 50 years, I think they've learned, the, they've had a, a system of management. It might not be the healthiest system. Um, and there, there must be a better way to do it than, uh, you know, passing out pills on the plane or giving guys drugs ahead of the game to, to anticipate pain. Um, those are not healthy practices. So I, th- I think the lesson to be learned is one that they're still trying to learn. And it's what, what is the best, safe, healthy way to do it that doesn't just help these guys on Sunday or Monday, but helps them years down the road. Um, the pain's always going to be there. 
as long as those guys are hitting each other and, and they're only getting bigger and faster and stronger, as anyone that watches the game can see, pain's not going away. they got to figure out a pain management system that makes sense and really helps these guys um, you know, years after they leave the game. I'm not sure that's in place right now. Outstanding. Well, Rick, I want to thank you today for your time. Sure thing. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. We've been visiting today with Rick Mays, who is a sports features writer for the Washington Post. He's done an outstanding job of reporting on NFL team doctors' practices of prescribing pain pills to keep players on the field. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for listening to this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.